Hey everyone, before this podcast begins, we want to tell you about some other arts-related podcasts you're going to love. They are The Conduit Music Podcast, Artsville, Gringo and the Man, Art World Horror Stories, and Not Real Art. On these action-packed podcasts, you'll hear experts talk about creativity, design, the music biz, the art world, visual art, American craft, Chicano art, street art, graffiti, and even stand-up comedy. So be sure to find and follow these great arts podcasts today. Now, back to your regularly scheduled programming. Warning, the Not Real Art Podcast is intended for creative audiences only. The Not Real Art Podcast celebrates creativity and creative culture worldwide. It contains material that is fresh, fun and inspiring and is not suitable for boring old art snobs. Now, let's get started and enjoy the show. Greetings and salutations, my creative brothers and sisters. Welcome to the Not Real Art Podcast, where we celebrate the world's most creative people. I'm your faithful, trusty, tireless host, Sourdough, coming at you from our studios here in Los Angeles at Crew West. I am thrilled to talk to you about today's episode, but first I get into it, I want to encourage you to check out all the great stuff we have for you on our website. We're posting new stuff every day. And want to be sure to encourage you to share, like this episode and make a comment because we appreciate the engagement. It makes the algorithm gods happy, which is good for us. So thanks for that. Okay, today's guest, Michael Fashionello of Altamira. Do you guys know Altamira? Well, you should. Altamira helps artists gain recognition and sell their work. It allows art fans, lovers, collectors, critics, and novices to discover the top art of today each and every day. It brings artists, fans, critics together in a space without gatekeepers and pretension. Sound familiar? Well, I tell you what, I was grateful to have Michael on the show. And if you don't know about Altamira, you got to go check them out. Go to altamira.art. That's A-L-T-A-M-I-R-A, altamira.art. Check them out, sign up. It's free to artists. They've got so many amazing social media-related technologies, ways of marketing and promoting your work. They even have a grant, the Pink Bison Prize, which is fantastic. So be sure to check that out and sign up. Try to try to win. So yeah, you're going to love what they're doing. And I love talking to Michael because we share so many of the same ideas and values. And our ethos is very similar in terms of trying to just Help artists earn a better living and connect with new buyers and fans. And what I like about their model is that it's a kind of a social, word-of-mouth driven kind of uh, model where people can recommend and share artists and art that they're really loving. Anyway, I'll let you guys check it out. You need to go to altamira.art, again, A-L-T-A-M-I-R-A.art, and check it out. And I just love this conversation with Michael. So without further ado, let's get into this and hear from the one and only Michael Fashionello of Altamira. Michael Fashionello of Altamira, welcome to Not Real Art. 
Thank you so much for having me. Man, I tell you, it was a little messy getting together between your crazy schedule and my crazy schedule, but here we are. I'm so grateful. Thanks for taking the time. Yeah, of course. I'm glad we could get it figured out, and it's good to be talking with you. So how many podcasts is this for you? Because I've heard you on others. I'm wondering how many podcasts you've been on talking about your great work at Altamira. I think it's about five now. I think this might be the fifth one. It's been really fun to get to talk about Altamira. And certainly I'm grateful for all the hosts who have have had me on and and have had us on. It's just such a, a fun way to sort of spread the word about something like Altamira. Absolutely. I mean, on on a certain level, right, if you're a brand trying to market yourself these days, in some ways it's easier than ever. In some ways it's more challenging than ever, right? I mean, you got to just kind of be everywhere all the time. (laughs) Yeah. Every channel is super crowded and more expensive than ever. Everything is hyper competitive. Each time something new opens up, smart people figure out how to optimize it. So the barrier to entry is lower, but the ability to execute is higher. Absolutely. And it's interesting because you talk about kind of a crowded space and things that are kind of competitive. You know, one of the things that I love about what you guys are doing at Altamera is that you really feels like to me, you tell me if I'm wrong, but it feels like to me you really are sort of filling a gap in the market. I I don't know. I haven't been able to find another platform that really does what Altamera does. By the way, before you answer that, (laughs) I want to tell you how much I love your name. Altamera, high things to look at. I mean, like that was what my research uh, indicated. And, and so I don't know what the Genesis origin story of your name is, but the idea that, you know, Altamera sort of being rooted in this notion of high things to look at, I think is perfect for what you guys are doing. It's funny. I actually didn't know that background or that meaning for it. I guess, quick story, I hate naming things. And as we were researching, don't have kids. Don't yeah, have kids, Michael. <laughs> I have one, and that that was okay. It was it was okay to name my okay. son. But for this, it was just going through a lot of different things and trying to figure it out. And offhandedly, came across the Altamira caves in Spain, which are the oldest or, or close to being the oldest cave paintings that they've found and discovered. And just thought that was a really cool sort of metaphor and an analogy for what we were doing, that being the first place that people really painted and did art. And now fast forward into the technological age, we're providing what we think is a new way to not only display your art, but sell it and and sort of interact in a technologically advanced sort of way. That's the whole name background. But thank you. I'm glad that, that you like it. Like I said, it not one of my favorite things to do, but I think it's a really fitting name and, and I really like sort of how the metaphor carries forward. Absolutely. And by the way, those caves are exactly why I always argue that graffiti is the oldest art form. Yeah. <laughs> you know, writing on walls, it can't, you know, it doesn't get any uh, older than that, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And if you've ever visited the Colosseum or Rome, you'll see some real old graffiti there too. It's something for whatever reason, we've just had a, a need, us humans, to either do art or, or to stake a claim that we've been someplace. Express ourselves, express ourselves. Yeah, man. So let's go back because, I mean, you know, one of the things that sort of bums me out, right, for artists within the art space is that 
for the and, and by the way, you guys are part of the solution, not part of the problem. So let, let me just state state that. I mean, really, when it comes to, you know, the art market, there's been like basically zero innovation, right, over the, the last 50 years. It's sort of been one business model primarily to serve like 0.01% of artists. So as a, as a marketplace, as a business sector, We've seen very little innovation. Now that's changing, obviously, over the last many years. You know, technology is empowering companies like yours to do innovative, interesting things to kind of put the power back in both the artist's hands and and in the people's hands, right? Because at the end of the day, right? I mean, I I always like to find out the great restaurants my friends are going to are recommending or the great band or the great book or whatever. Why not the great artists? Why not the great art? Oh, you need to check out this or, oh, I really love this. Oh, here, check this link out. And the social aspect of our lives, it's timeless, right? I mean, this has always been going on, but the fact that like Altamira is trying to leverage that or, or seize that, put that in a bottle or in a platform, so to speak, so that people can, an artist can sort of get new collectors, new fans, new followers. Kudos to you guys for really trying to innovate and do something special for artists. Yeah, thank you. It's something where we sort of looked out and saw that the art world didn't have anyone really taking advantage of what technology and, and sort of a connected networked world could provide for you. Where there was innovation, it was really just taking the Amazon model of allowing commerce to happen online and not thinking about how art is unique or different and how that sale is different and how that interaction is different. And I think the interaction component is what we've really keyed in on so that we're taking what is available to us through the internet and through technology to sort of not only enable sort of the interactions you would expect offline, but also adding on to them where if you go into a gallery, you can only talk to a gallerist about a specific work of art, where on Altamira, you can read from a number of different critics who have written critiques on those artworks, as well as fans, collectors, other artists, and really, to your point, allowing for more conversation to take place, whether it is somebody you know or somebody that you don't. But at least for us and looking out there, there's a lot of people who really, really want to become art collectors. I talked to an investor yesterday, actually, who described himself as somebody who wants to buy art. The guy makes a lot of money. He just doesn't know what to buy. And he doesn't feel the confidence. He doesn't know if the prices are okay or not okay. And so really, he's looking for that neutral third-party validation. He's been texting with a gallerist who's asking me questions about how to interact with the gallerist. Is he allowed to negotiate? Is this work that he likes actually good? Or is it just something that's speaking to him? And and sort of, in my opinion is, if you like the work, that's good enough. But for most people, they need to have a little further validation. And so that's what we try to provide with the neutral third-party critiques from just different critics and from other artists and, and other fans. So that when you do see something you like as a, new collector, you have the confidence to pull the trigger and make that purchase. And then on the flip side for more savvy collectors, sort of the classic, if you're somebody who's buying for an investment, or even if you're just an art advisor looking to put a value on a work of art, you look at what the provenance is, which collectors have purchased from that artist, if they've been into a museum, you know, if they're a part of a really high-end gallery, sort of those indicators of value 
and those sort of social indicators. And we're seeing more and more, a lot of the online indicators are becoming just as important, how many followers you have on Instagram, things like that. And so we're trying to enable a lot of those tools for both the artists to drive more value into their work, but for collectors to sort of get more indication of whether this is an artwork that they would want to add to their collection on that sort of basis. And obviously, at the end of the day, we just want people to buy art that they like and love and for them to be able to see a bunch of amazing art and interact around it. Yeah, I mean, you hit on so many important points there, right? Because at the end of the day, right, we need to grow the pie, right? And it's like, we need more people in the art market. You know, artists need more people in the art market, right? And the blue chip first world of art has done such a great job of sort of establishing this allure or this sort of idea or or standard that you've got to buy art number one, you know, as an economic asset that's going to appreciate in value and you don't know anything about it. You need us, <laughs> you know, to help yeah. you. And at a certain level and at a certain price point, and depending on what your motivation is as a savvy collector, absolutely, that is totally credible. But you know, for the newbies coming in, right, who maybe are a little uncertain, a little unsure, it's a fascinating thing because, you know, on so many levels, we as human beings, like we need that validation, right? It's like, oh, you know, that permission. It's like, is that really cool? Is that really what I want? But the idea that, number one, do you like it? Do you want to see it every day in your house? And does it make you happy, right? Or does it stir you? Does it make you feel anything, right? And that idea that, that, that is a basic entry point, right? And giving, no matter where you're at or what your socioeconomic status is, this idea that most people can buy an original piece of art. Because you and I both know that the majority of original contemporary art available for sale right now is priced somewhere between, you know, oh, I don't know, 100 bucks and 5,000 bucks. Yep. <laughs> you know? So I tell people sometimes, like, you know what? A little uncertain where to start. What's your favorite color? Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. What's your, fa- Oh, red. Okay. Well go meet some red artists Yeah. <laughs> in platforms like yours. And, you know, to be able to, to use a tool like yours or have a platform community, because on a certain level, what you're doing is creating a community. Right. And I think that people, when they get involved, you know, with the community at Altamira, they're going to start feeling empowered. They're going to start learning. They're going to start feeling like they've got permission. It's like, Oh, right. Yeah. Okay, cool. I mean, I, I like that and that's okay. I'm going to buy them. Who knows if it's going to be worth something, but who cares? I love it. And then as you become more educated and maybe more sophisticated, you know, you can start to have different conversations with yourself and others about why you might buy a, a certain piece of art. Yeah, that's that's right. And the metaphor or joke that I use is it's like somebody who gets into wine. They don't start with a $100 bottle or a $1,000 bottle. They probably go to Trader Joe's and get a bottle of three buck chuck. And then oh, is it three bucks now? It used to be two bucks. Oh, yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah. Years ago, it was two buck chuck. So my God, inflation, you know, what are you going to do? Yeah. The, the good thing with the rhyme is that they can put any dollar amounts in front of it. I think yeah, it's, right. I think it's six <laughs> five bucks. Bucks chuck. Yeah, I think it's six bucks now, but whatever the yeah, case, right. you start with a cheap bottle and then you realize you like it and maybe you go to Napa and yes. go on a vineyard yes. tour and then all of a sudden you're ordering the very expensive wine with dinner. We do offer sort of price points across the, the gamut because we do want to grow that pie. I think yep. you're right that the elite galleries have done a wonderful job of creating scarcity and sort of creating this elite club. But what they've sort of been short-sighted on, and I do think it's short-sighted, is, is growing the pie by doing background yeah. checks before people can purchase 
you're making it so that future art buyers just aren't art buyers. They, they just aren't getting involved. And so yeah. it's making their business model harder. It makes it so they can sell their next piece more easily, but it makes it so the next hundred pieces don't sell as easily. That is really what we're trying to do for everybody is to grow the pie and also make it more inclusive. There's an article I read, I think it was a year ago now, almost out of, I think it was the New York Times that was detailing the hundred people who control the art market. And I think 99 of them were based out of New York. And it's this, these 100 people that are effectively deciding the fates of every artist on every living artist on earth as to whether or not their stuff will grow in value or, or be popular or, or well-acclaimed or, or whatever the merit is that you would think about. And I think that that's just wrong, that it should be a combination of everybody. Anybody who's interested in art should be able to participate in the conversation. And then certainly artists and critics and just a bigger group of people all participating is a better way to do it. I don't know the last time that I went to a restaurant without looking at how it was rated on Google or Yelp. And while that isn't the only thing I look at or consider, I don't want to go to a two-star restaurant. And so it's nice to get that information in addition to whatever else. And we hope and think that over the long run, even if you are buying an artwork in a gallery, that you'll check Altamira first and get information about that artist, just like you would go look at somebody's LinkedIn and see, okay, here's what critics are saying about them. Here's the shows they've been involved with. Here's where they've been written up in the press and sort of have a central repository of everything about an artist so that it's good for them no matter what. Yeah, for sure. For sure. You know, it's funny over the years, I, you know, as I've had these conversations with people who are sort of you know, wandering into buying art, maybe for the first time, I always mention, uh, I say, you know what, study and learn about Herb and Dorothy. And they look at me and they're like, what? I'm Herb and Dorothy Vogel, you know, and I turn them on to the documentary, which based on on the smile on your face, I, I know <laughs> it seems like maybe you've had similar conversations because I mean, what an amazing story that is, right? I mean, Two people, husband and wife, who had, you know, one was a a post clerk, I think, and the other one, they were sort of working class people, didn't have a lot of money, but loved art and went around and met artists all over New York and just bought art that they loved. And their whole apartments filled up with art. And when they passed years later, not too long ago, their art collection was perhaps uh, priceless. <laughs> you know, I don't, I don't know, but, but it's, you know, it's, it's stories like that, right. That humanize and give us permission to sort of explore our own kind of curiosities and interests and take that risk, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Their story is certainly one that opens up the doors for people to, as you said, give themselves permission to not feel like they need to be an expert to get started. And and the best way to start is just to put one foot in front of the other and and take that step. Well, what I was going to say is, I mean, Altamera, right, is this cross between technology, right, and contemporary art. And Mm -hmm. on one hand, right, you, you need to have credentials and credibility and expertise on the tech side of things. And certainly you need to have credibility and expertise on the art side of things. So tell me, I mean, tell me about your journey, because what gave you and your partners the technological experience to to start Altamera and what gave you guys the art expertise to start Altamera? Yeah. So my background is is traditionally in technology. I've spent my career 
designing and building software websites and apps. I did that for one of the top agencies in the country out of Chicago, and we would do that for clients. As I was doing that, one, our office was in the Fine Arts Building in downtown Chicago. So I'd walk into work and out of work every day, surrounded by artists. And so as I was building software for clients, this was always something that was percolating. I guess that's the background on how I'm able to build something like this. My partner and co-founder was the CTO at that agency. And so our technology and design chops are really through the roof. And we look at it as something where we aren't the entrenched players in the art market. We aren't coming from a gallery and saying, here's how it's done in the gallery. We'd like to add tech on top of this or to the mix. We can say, how should this be done? And sort of design to that and builds to that. And But that's not to say we don't have a background in art other than working in an arts building. My aunt as a kid actually owned a gallery in Basalt, Colorado. And so I would spend a lot of time there over the summers, especially as I was visiting my grandparents in Aspen. And I just sort of became fascinated by how the business worked, how art was sold, and and of course, just the art itself, and sort of carried that forward with me into this venture and have just poured myself into consuming and learning, have read a ton of books on art, have watched all the sort of documentaries and and that sort of thing. And through that have gotten to really know and understand how the market works and how art sort of gains and loses value, how artists gain and lose a following and kind of the traditional way in which art is bought and sold, and then how we think it should be done going forward. Well, that's a great story. And you're right. I mean, you know, at the end of the day, and this goes back to our original conversation, I mean, you know, yeah, sure, you you may not be this traditionally trained art dealer or what have you, but you grew up around art with appreciation for art, you had a passion and a love for art. And at the end of the day, <laughs> that's who you're trying to connect with, right? People like you and me, right? Who just, an artist, right? <laughs> who who have this passion and then you know, to have the real tech foundation, legitimate foundation around tech. I mean, that's the, you know, at the end of the day for, for Altamira, that is sort of the linchpin here. And you guys have that, you know, it's funny you mentioned Chicago and the Fine Arts Building. I actually graduated from Columbia College and walked past that building a hell of a lot. Yeah, <laughs> and lived in Chicago. I grew up outside Chicago and lived in downtown for years and years. We might we might have bumped elbows, although I'm probably a lot older than you. But we may have gotten drunk at the same bars, Michael. I don't know. Fairly, but what a great city! Likely. Shout yeah. out to Chicago. Right? Yeah, it's amazing. One of the well. According to the Denver Public Art Program Manager, Chicago's public art program is the best in the world. And just the art environment or art scene there is is pretty amazing, but just an amazing city in general. I think it's certainly a way to get started. And I think there was something you said there that I thought was interesting that I was going to elaborate on. I think that I am the audience that we're trying to appeal to in some regard, we're, but we think that in the same way that you start with three buck chuck and then work your way up. We also are appealing to sort of more serious collectors and more serious people within the institution and think that by designing for people who are just getting into art and also at the far end of the spectrum of super expert sort of collectors and 
museum curators, et cetera, that will hit everybody in the middle. So that's what we've been doing. A week or two ago, I was talking to a collector who has 300 some odd sculptures in a sculpture park that this collection, I wouldn't even venture to guess what it's valued at, but that's one of the people that we've been getting feedback from and and working to kind of incorporate how to sell art to that type of person as well. We've been talking with one of the museums here in Denver to partner with us for our Pink Bison Prize, which we're awarding in February. And it sounds like they're going to come on board with that just to sort of take what we're doing and, and get it out to more people, which we're really excited about. But yeah, just by focusing on both ends of the, the spectrum at who we're trying to appeal for, we can a- appeal to a pretty broad audience. And that's what we're really trying to do is grow the pie. Well, you know, what's so exciting about what you're getting at, for me anyway, of course, who am I? But this idea, it feels like this opportunity for you guys to almost create a, I don't know, what should we call it? I mean, maybe in rational business terms, you talk about the, you know, maybe consumer journey, right? Designing that experience or designing that journey for someone to, if they come in, almost like assessing when they come in, you know, assessing where they're at, right? It's like, oh, is this a, a new collector or a savvy collector? But then, you know, to be able to profile, right, your users in a way that allows them to experience Altamera based on sort of where they're at, right, and this take them on this journey to feel like, oh, you're going to help them evolve, right? Like you're going to help them learn and educate and, and become more savvy, right, if you're a newbie. And if you are a savvy collector, well, then you're creating a space for them that feels, I don't know, unique and special for them as well, value-added, unique and special for them. What a fantastic opportunity for you guys. And just, I mean, in terms of what, you know, I don't know, you probably go a million different directions, but, and that's the challenge, right? Like, how do you say no? I remember, I forget who it was, maybe it was the CEO of Procter & Gamble, but somebody like that was saying that, you know, one of the toughest, most important parts of his job is his ability to say no. Because there's always good ideas, right? It's like always like, oh, yeah, we should do this. We should do that. We should. Oh, yeah, we we could. And maybe we should. But, you know, we got to focus and we can't do everything. So you've got to be disciplined and rigorous. So this must be something you guys deal with all the time. It's like, oh, my goodness, you know, we could have you know, we, we could do all these things. How do you pick and choose and how do you stay focused and disciplined and say no to some things and yes to the and others? Yeah. And I guess I'll start with one. What you described is is what we are working on on creating. One of the beautiful things with software is that you're never done building. It's something where you put out the product and then you improve it each and every day. So ultimately, we are building in machine learning models to start making recommendations for people. Here's art that you'll like. We're building in a pricing model so that it will make suggestions to artists what price their work will sell at so they can sort of decide how they want to price their work with more data and information based on what's selling, how their work has sold in the past, how work that's similar to it will sell in the past, and really accommodating for those different user journeys, as you mentioned. But to prioritize is is probably the hardest thing that we do on a daily basis, because there is so much that we're excited about and want to do. The way we go about it is kind of twofold. One, we have a backlog of all of our great ideas, whether those are product features or marketing things, or content creation, events, etc., and have those all sort of categorized into that backlog. And then we put it through, on a weekly basis, 
we take account of how much capacity we have and then put it through a prioritization framework that takes into account how much impact that it will have on on our business, on our users and their ability to sort of grow their brand or grow their audience, to make more money, to increase the amount of interaction that is had and to kind of get art out into the world more. And then take that impact and and take that into account of how much effort it will take to get over the finish line, how much effort will it take to have that impact and are basically constantly running through that process. Sometimes we are reordering the backlog and sometimes we're pulling different things into our progress flow or workflow. And then sometimes as we're working through, we'll learn something from having a conversation with an artist or a collector or a critic or what have you. And that will help us reprioritize something. So it's kind of a multifaceted thing where we're just trying to create as much surface area as we can to gather information and then work through a process so that we're not constantly just chasing our tails and changing our minds. And those two combination of things that are kind of opposites, one will make you chase your tail if you just listen to feedback and input. And the other, if you don't listen to the feedback and input, you're just going to go the wrong direction. So it's a little like sailing a boat. You look at the tells, you see where the wind's coming from, you know the direction you want to go, and then you have to tack to get there. Right on. Well, you know, one of the things you mentioned, the uh, Pink Bison Award, I mean, you know, earlier you, you talked about how you hated naming things. Boy, you stuck the landing on that name. I love that name, the Pink Bison Award. Like, <laughs> how did that come to be? <laughs> Maybe I'm getting better at naming. My hatred has made me uh, sharpen the tool set. <laughs> that was one where we knew we wanted to create an award that was meaningful to us, meaningful to the artists who participate, and also meaningful to collectors who are, are sort of following along. And we're also looking at the company and saying we're about democratizing the world of art and you look at the most prestigious award there is in the art world the golden lion i thought it was a little tongue-in-cheek to <laughs> yeah. to piggyback off of that and take our brand color which is pink and take what would be an unofficial mascot the the bison and put them together and you've got the pink bison award <laughs> I love it. I love it. Yeah. You know, naming is, is one of those things because, you know, that's why talk about democratizing art. I mean, that's why we call our, our little podcast and everything we're doing under the Not Real Art banner. That's how we came up with the name Not Real Art, because artists got the joke immediately immediately. And anytime I would talk to, you know, traditional, you know, more conventional gallerists or patrons or collectors, whatever, they did not get the joke at all. <laughs> and I was like, it was just hilarious. Cause it's like, no, 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 we're trying to bring more people in. You know, <laughs> it's like, it's like, we want to be this friendly, accessible space. Yeah. Well, anyway, naming is so important. And, uh, you know, you, I, I gotta say as an entrepreneur who's trying to change the very complicated world of art, you probably don't get much sleep. Let's say nothing of the fact that you're also a dad. And, you know, it turns out you said it was easy naming your son. What's your son's name? Let's honor him for a minute. Uh, Sawyer. His, his first name is Sawyer, middle name Wild, and then Fashionello for Tom Sawyer, Oscar Wilde. And then I let him keep my name, I guess. <laughs> 
And he didn't, I mean, he just showed up. What did he even do to earn that? I, I told my wife on, on our wedding day, I said, I said, you, I said, I'm not giving you my name. She's like, what are you talking about? I'm like, well, you're just marrying me. I mean, what did you, what, what, what did you really do to earn it? She did not like that joke. Sawyer Wild. That is fantastic, man. Beautiful name. And two of my favorite, well, one character and uh, one of my favorite writers, Oscar Wilde. Well, I'll tell you what, Michael, this is fantastic, man. I, I'm so grateful for you taking time to come on the show and, and talk about the great work you guys are doing, the important work you're doing for artists, you know, democratizing art and, and the art world is so important for so many reasons. Yes, of course, we want to help artists live above, make earn more money and earn a living beyond and above the poverty line, which most artists live under. You know, and that's on the, shall we say, the supply side, on the demand side, right? What you, you know, we need to democratize art because if people feel comfortable and empowered around art and artists and arts education, what have you, I feel like not only are they going to be better humans, but we're going to see, I don't know that we can be an advanced civilization if people, if art doesn't get democratized, quite frankly. Yeah, it, it does such important work at the base level. It just makes people happier when they look at it or, or engage with it. And then beyond that, there's so much important artwork that has moved politics, that has made great points about society and, and sort of helped people view themselves and view the world they're living in in a different way. And so I think there is a claim to be made or a stake to say that making art more accessible is, is important work to do just on that merit. But I think that it does make people happier. And I do believe that making art less exclusive doesn't make the prices go down. I think it just makes it go up too. So for everybody involved, it's sort of a, an endeavor worth doing. Well, speaking of prices, I feel like we need to talk about this for a second before we go our separate ways here. But so if I'm an artist and I'm struggling and I want to go on Altamera, what's it cost me? Is it free to me as an artist? Do I have to, are there levels, membership levels, subscription levels? Take us through the pricing model. Yeah, yeah, of course. It's completely free. So Altamera makes money when you sell a work of art and we take 10%. So you keep 90%. Wait, you don't take 50% like most galleries? Yeah, it's bizarre, right? But, and I feel for a lot of the galleries, it's a really tough business to be a gallerist, yep. but they've got really expensive real estate. And that's one of the main functions that drive their success. We don't have real estate, so we don't have to bolt on the, the real estate tax. Yep. And then we also just looked at what is this going to require for us to be economically viable? And 10% was the rate that we did mm -hmm. that was required for us to do it. And, and we think that the more we can keep that price low or that that rate low, the more mm -hmm. artists that will get involved and the more people who are involved, the more open it is to everybody. I love that because actually, I mean, you guys, you know, on a certain level, you only make money if the artists make money. And by the way, you're just, you know, you're a dating service on a certain level, right? So, so you know, you're getting a very modest, I think very fair, incredibly fair commission, 10%. And I think most artists would be happy to give you that 10%. That's very exciting because, you know, I mean, at the end of the day, you know, you mentioned, it's funny, you mentioned galleries. Yeah. I mean, there's that overhead, right? That crazy overhead that they're trying to cover. I mean, we had 
my business partner and I, we had an art gallery for 10 years here in LA and we were very successful and we survived the 08 recession and all that good stuff. Yeah. But after 10 years, because our passion, right? Our passion is helping artists. Our passion is working with artists and art. But then after 10 years of having a gallery, we said, you know what? We don't ever want to touch an artwork again. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, touching an artwork just suddenly, the complexity and the logistics and the stress just goes like through the roof. And it's like, oh, how can we help artists without actually having to touch the art? <laughs> yeah, totally. And it makes a ton of sense in what you're saying. It is stressful for a gallerist to have to put it on and to figure out how to get the people through the door and also how to pay the rent. Like I said, I think galleries are an important part of the art ecosystem and certainly not trying to put any galleries out of business, just trying oh. to hopefully help galleries by getting more people who care about art into the ecosystem. A hundred percent. And I mean, I think let's, let's emphasize that, right? We need everybody. It's a big problem, right? And we need gal artists need galleries, galleries need to exist. But what, what you guys are doing, you're trying to address that other end that was just non-existent. You know, we need more innovation. We need more opportunities, more business models that help artists sell their work. And, and that's what you guys are addressing, right? And so these things should be complementary, right? It's like a symbiotic ecosystem of complementary stakeholders, right? At least that's how it should be. Yeah. And certainly Instagram has played a large role for a lot of artists of late. But the problem with Instagram is it's just not designed for artists, for artwork, for art collectors, really any of that. And, and with the changes in the algorithm, it's just getting harder and harder. And we're yeah. saying, let's design a social network explicitly for art and the challenges yeah. that artists have to overcome. In addition to the, the collectors, where for a collector to find artwork and to find artists, you have to sift through the bikini models and the breakfast pictures and everything else that's on Instagram. And so it's not very streamlined or suited to discovering art. For the artists, they can't really sell through Instagram. They'll either have to push people to their gallery or figure out how to collect money and do all the shipping and all the logistics and everything else if they do it through their DMs. And we've just taken care of all of that. It's in support of the whole ecosystem, I think, is the point that I've probably really beat. But You had me at bikini models, Michael. <laughs> <laughs> no, you know, but it's like in terms of Instagram, hashtag make Instagram Instagram again. Like let's, you know, the it's fast. It's even harder than ever, right? I mean, like, because Instagram was kind of, game changer for artists in terms of having that like still image and now they're trying to be tiktok or whatever yeah that's a whole nother podcast right totally yeah absolutely <laughs> uh, michael fashionello of altamira man thank you for coming on the show this has been awesome i'm so stoked for you guys i think everything you're doing is so important for artists and Will you please come back on the show and keep us posted as to what's going on? And we want to help you guys to the extent we can and and support and promote and amplify and boost because what you're doing is important work. And we're grateful for you guys. And thanks so much for helping artists. We share a common set of values and passions in terms of trying to put money in, in artists' pockets and food on their plate and, and, and change the art world. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much for having me, Scott. Would love to come back on. If anybody, any of the listeners are interested in, in learning more about Altamira, our website is altamira.art and they can find us there. If you want to chat with me, I have a calendar link available on our about page to set up time with me. I try to be as accessible as possible myself. 
And if you have any feedback, definitely let us know. Otherwise, like I said, thanks so much for having us, Scott. Hey, that's that's great, Michael. Thanks so much for coming on. Don't go anywhere. Stay right there. We're going to sign off. Everybody, thanks for listening. This is your faithful host, Sourdough, with Michael Fashionello of Altamira signing off. Thanks for listening to the Not Real Art Podcast. Please make sure to like this episode, write a review, and share with your friends on social. Also, remember to subscribe so you get all of our new episodes. Not Real Art is produced by Crew West Studios in Los Angeles. Our theme music was created by Ricky Peugeot and Desi Deloro from the band Parlor Social. Not Real Art is created by We Edit Podcast and hosted by Captivate. Thanks again for listening to Not Real Art. We'll be back soon with another inspiring episode celebrating creative culture and the artists who make it.